How many of you guys grew up doing sword drills? And like sword drills with your Bibles, trying to see who can get there the fastest? It was like a little kid Sunday school game or vacation Bible school. You did that? All right, we're going to do a backwards version before we actually get into our Bible study. I'm going to read a passage, and I want to see if you guys can tell me where it's at. Either the book of the Bible, if if you get the chapter, double kudo points, okay? All right, tell me if you know where this verse is, or this passage. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, it's Hebrews, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. But chapter 4, yeah, Hebrews 4. Yes, he can, yes, he can. I'm a participant tonight. He's allowed. We'll permit it. All right. Um... Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior. Let him show by his good behavior, his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy or selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom, yep, James, this wisdom is not that which comes down from above. Yep, but as earthly, natural, demonic. Seventeen. No. no. Sorry. Fourteen, fifteen. Yeah. yeah. yeah close enough. Yeah. <laughs> I guess we'll allow it. All right, let's do a couple more. <laughs> what? We need to get you a, a new Bible. <laughs> What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. That's Paul, yeah. <laughs> you narrowed it down a little bit. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Romans 9, 22-ish. All right, now Jeremy's not allowed. <laughs> yeah, sorry, Jeremy. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. John, yeah? Every, yeah, 15. Good job. Huh? That was John 15, verse 1. Just starting out. That's why you're not allowed. You're kicked out. No more. <laughs> um, let's see. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. Huh? But others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst. Yep, Acts 17. Last week's lesson. That's right about where we left off. Good job. <laughs> Glad you got that one. You want to play more? <laughs> You could go in the kids' class. They play those kind of games all the time. Not really. But as I get older, we certainly will. All right, let's go ahead and open up in prayer, and then we will jump back into Acts 17-ish. Ish. Ish. Yep. 
Lord, we thank you for your Bible. We thank you that it is your holy, inspired, infallible word, that we can trust it. We thank you for the many men and women who suffered and um, sacrificed so we can have it, the, the long nights and the, um, the tiresome hours of, of translation and um, hiding your word, not just in their hearts, but writing it down so we can have it today. God, we pray that as we open it up and look into it, that you would open up our eyes and our hearts so we can better understand it, we can better understand you and who we are in, in relation to you. God, I pray that as we look at the early church, we would be able to relate to them as we are the, the same body and, and bride of Christ and um, that we would be able to take and apply truths that we learn and um, we wouldn't just be storing up head knowledge, but we would be seeking to make an impact on this community, this state, and this world in your name. Amen. All right, so what's going on in Acts chapter 17? Lots. Yeah, break out those notes. That's always good. Remember the... Go ahead. Paul's talking to the wise man in Athens, right? Yeah. And at the Areopagus. Yeah. Or Mars Hill. On Mars Hill. And then he left. And that's smack dab in the middle of what missionary journey? Second. Second. Second of the three missionary journeys that we see in the book of Acts. Remember the first handful of chapters were really focusing on Peter. You see John a little bit. Uh, got Stephen in there. Um, the the birth of what became known as the, the deacons. And then as we progress, we see in chapter 9, that's where Paul is um, combating the church. And he's persecuting the church. And then he really gets into his missionary journeys uh, just a couple chapters later. Chapter 13 is where he goes on his first missionary journey with who? Barnabas, yes. Yeah, say it more confidently. <laughs> You're right. That's like the second or third time you've been right tonight. So speak up loud and proud. <laughs> yeah, you need to start bringing gold stars, huh? Um, so yeah, on his first missionary journey, he went out with Barnabas. And let's go back a little bit in our reading. Let's go back to the end of 15, chapter 15. And let's, will somebody read verses 39 through 41? There occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another. And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. And he was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. All right, so Paul and Silas went through... Cilicia and Syria, as we said, strengthening churches. And then we had Barnabas, Barney, and Mark, right? And then Barney. That's probably what Paul called him, um, even though he didn't speak English, right? Um, and so they split up. So these two were on the first missionary journey together. Things didn't work out, but that's all right. They doubled their missionary efforts. What about... Chapter 16, verse 1. Will somebody read that for us? 
got it. You came to Derby and then to the district where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was a Jewess and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. All right. So they get here into um, going through Derby and Lystra, and they pick up uh, Timmy, right? You got Barney and Timmy. Um, so it's kind of easy to remember the first half of Acts is Peter, and the second half is Paul, right? But then we get into the missionary journeys, and people are coming and going, and so let's try to keep track tonight who's who's who and who's where and when they come and when they go, because it gets a little bit confusing. They just kind of pop in and pop out, and um, that's kind of Paul's MO from here on. He's orchestrating things and putting people in different places and setting up pastors so they can establish elders, and um, he's pulling strings, right? Trying to get the the church brewing and going. Um, So Acts 16, and then what takes place in verse 10 of Acts 16? All right, we see Luke there. And we only know that because of the word we and us, right? It takes place in 16.10 and goes through 17 or 18-ish. Yeah, look at verse, I'll read verse 17 and 18. Notice the, the difference in the language. So, again, Luke is writing Acts, and he says, Follow after Paul and us. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God, who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. She continued doing this for many days, but Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very moment. And as we get into this next section, um, Paul, or Luke rather, isn't in the scene anymore. He kind of takes a step back. Um, it's likely he got left there in uh, Philippi and just stuck around ministering in that region. But it shifts focus and it goes to Paul and Silas and how they got arrested. And they got dragged off into prison. Um, 19 through, what was that, like 34-ish, something like that. Why was it Paul and Silas who got dragged off into prison? What was unique about those two? Did you say something, Mike? Yeah, they were Jews, both Jews who happened to be Roman citizens. And how did that benefit them? So you're not allowed to be Roman citizens, or yeah, yeah, they have to have a fair trial. Yeah, remember it came out that they were Roman citizens. And they said, you're just going to try to let us go quietly, us being Roman citizens? And they found out they were Roman citizens and they were terrified, right? They kind of, their jaws dropped and they were nervous because they realized they'd messed up pretty bad. And Paul and Silas used that and leveraged that for gospel opportunity. (coughs) All right, um, let's jump forward a little bit more and look at... Chapter 17. Will somebody read verses 14 and 15? This is in between uh, Thessalonica and Athens. So first it was Thessalonica, then Berea, right? And then Athens. Then 
did Paul brought him to Athens and received a commandment for Silas and Timothy to come to him from Spain. All right, so in 17, 14, and 15, we see that, um, well, who was it, Silas and Timothy, right? They got left where? Where were they left? Where were they left? Berea. And so they left them, or Paul rather, left them in Berea, and he took off by himself to Athens, and that's what we covered last week, right? Um, two weeks ago? Yeah. Four weeks ago. What have we been doing for the last three weeks? Have you not been listening to the podcast? I have, but... <laughs> <laughs> All right, so um, Paul was in Athens by himself. Um, some people actually, and I think for good reason, think that they showed up in Athens momentarily. Um, let's look at... Oh, okay. See, I got through like half of yours, okay? <clears throat> All right, so 1 Thessalonians 3, 1 and 2. Um, talk about them showing up in Athens, or we can surmise rather that they showed up in Athens momentarily. So um, I'm going to... 1 Timothy, I meant 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. <clears throat> um, if somebody beats me there, go ahead and read it. Alright, I'll read it. Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's fellow worker to in the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. So they showed up from Berea, went to Athens as the next city on our list. Um, but Paul said, no, we need uh, Timothy to go back to Thessalonica. So, and then... What did you teach about Silas? What do you mean, like where he was? Yeah. Do you um, think he went to Philippi or? After that? Yeah. Um, I only mentioned it passing. I mean, we don't know for <laughs> sure. I think both things that I mentioned were speculative in nature. Yeah. Yeah, I think we can say with a lot more certainty that Timothy went to Thessalonica, and I think it was on this at this point, um, coming from Berea and then going to Athens, um, they met up for a minute and Paul, even though you can imagine he would treasure that, that friendship, that companionship to have somebody there ministering alongside of him, he saw that it was more necessary for Timothy to go and to strengthen the church at Thessalonica. And a lot of other people, again, speculate that Silas could have ended up in Philippi. And so, either way, Paul was there ministering by himself in Athens. And then um, we're going to pick up in Acts 18 as he moves on to the next city. But before we do that, let's reread those last few verses in chapter 17 and remind ourselves where we left off in, in Athens and the response that we had there. Will somebody read 1732 through 34, please? Yeah. 
Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, We shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. All right. So Paul preaching the resurrection like he does, right? And what was the response? Yeah, some were interested. Let, let's hear some more, right? Yeah. Yeah, some of them began to sneer and just straight out mocked him and rejected it, right? <laughs> Resurrection. Are you kidding me? Men don't rise from the dead, right? Then others said, well, that's, that's intriguing. We'll listen. But then a few of them believed and, and joined him. Um, I don't know that means that they went along with him to these various cities, but they agreed with him and um, nodded their head in agreement, right, and believed and accepted the, the teaching of the resurrection that he brought to them. All right, verse, yes? They accepted the teaching but not Jesus? Uh, what do you think? Yes. <laughs> yes? They accepted the teaching that Jesus rose from the dead, but they rejected Jesus himself? No. <laughs> no. Yeah, I think they, they embraced Christ and they believed and they were part of that number that was added to their number, became part of the church, and they were redeemed, right? When the praise band got up after Paul was done, they rose their hands back. <laughs> yep. And they filled out a prayer card. There you go. So, so they're good, right? <laughs> Oh, man. Wait. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> Good job, Andy. Right on cue. <laughs> All right. Uh, chapter 18, verse 1 says, After these things, he left Athens. And again, we see he, singular, right? Paul is by himself. Um, these other people are no longer with him. He's on his way out of Athens, and he ends up in Corinth. Corinth is a city that we should know a little something about, right? Um, we've been going through 1 Corinthians for a little while, not too long, maybe two months or so. Um, and we know that it was a big popular trading hub, right? I wish I had a map to show you, but if you kind of know where, where Greece is, it's like a little, a little ball that's down on the bottom of um, got Macedonia up here. I'm writing all over this board. Okay, so it's kind of that shaped, and Greece is down here in this little ball-like um, area, and then right here is Corinth, and so it's a, a main trading hub between this northern region where Macedonia is and then Greece down here. A lot of people going through and, and trading. Um, they had a, a lot of trade going east to west, too, because they had ships that wanted to go through that little flat spot. Um, it was very dangerous for ships to go around the southern part of that. It's extra 200 miles, super dangerous. And so people would often bring a ship up to either side and unload there. And I learned a couple of days ago that they would actually roll the ships across the land sometimes. They would um, take the ship and they'd put it up on like rollers and they'd push it five miles across what? appreciate the first sermon of the series. Well, I was running the sound booth the first sermon of the series, so 
If you guys haven't learned anything tonight, I don't listen to Jeremy. <laughs> so, forgive me. But um, it was a, a very popular city for trade, um, which also made it very populous and very wicked, right? Um, to be called a Corinthian meant something. It meant that you are searching after uh, sexual sin. Um, a woman who would be called a Corinthian would be known as a, a prostitute or a whore, right? Um, and it would even be used as a, a verb, like these guys are going off to Corinthianize. Um, it had that much of a, a reputation. Uh, it was an evil, wicked, idolatrous, adulterous city. What else do we know about Corinth from Jeremy's sermons that some of us listen to? Sorry, Drew. <laughs> How do you know that? <laughs> the Bible tells me so. Yeah. Uh, yeah, 1 Corinthians 6, he lists off a bunch of sins. Is it 6 or 3? It's 6, right? Um, that's 2 Corinthians. That's why I'm not finding it. Um, yeah, he says that, so starting in verse 9, it says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetousness, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then 11 says, such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. So, yeah, they were definitely caught up in all of that wicked sinfulness and Paul brought them the gospel. They were washed, sanctified, and justified. What else do we know about Corinth? Yeah. Yeah, it's similar to, to Athens, right? They had a desire to, to know things and to be wise and have a reputation for being wise. Um, MacArthur had a, a saying that if Athens uh, gloried in the mind, then Corinth gloried in the flesh. Um, not to say that they didn't glory in, in being wise and things in the mind, but um, just that, that contrast of the fleshly sinful desires that they had in, in Corinth that the Corinth was known for. All right, so after these things, he left Athens and he went to Corinth and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, he came to them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and they were working, and they were working for by trade they were tent makers. So there's a lot in those first three verses that we learn about this couple, Aquila and Priscilla. What do we learn about them in those first few verses? Jews. Yeah, at least Aquila is a Jew, right? Yeah. Tent makers, right? Say it again. I think they were tent makers by trade, weren't they? Yeah. That's where Paul. Leather workers. 
So tent making would be one aspect of working with leather. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so they were in Italy and they were run out of Rome, right? Um, the Jews were all exiled and ended up various places like um, Corinth where they met up with Paul. And we also learned that they had that, that trade in common with Paul. Paul also was a, a tent maker, a leather worker, and they kind of found each other and, and started some kind of business together, right? They were living together, working together, um, and things seemed like they were going kind of well, right? At least Paul wasn't alone anymore. He was alone before, and he found Aquila and Priscilla. Um, and this is one of the few times where Aquila is mentioned first. Usually later on, Priscilla is mentioned first. It's Priscilla and Aquila with a lot of time later on in Scripture when we see them, which is unusual because Priscilla is the, the wife. So it would be more common, you would think, for Aquila to be mentioned first. Anything else in those first few verses? Yeah, a lot of people think that they were believers beforehand. Um, they could have been believers even in Rome before they were exiled out of Rome. I don't know if we just mentioned this in the chatter, but this is where we learned that Paul was a tent maker too. This is the only place in Scripture where we see that. Yeah. Um, since it says he was of the same trade. Yep. Yeah, and that's important that he was working, right? Um, Paul was a hard worker. We see that in uh, Thessalonians. Let's turn back to Thessalonians. Um, and he didn't only work himself, but he encouraged other people to work. And he was able to do so because he had that um, that history where he himself was, was used to working. So, let's see. I think it's 1 Corinthians 2 something. I'm just going to read. But we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children, having so fond of affection for you. We were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, also our own lives, because you have become very dear to us. For you are called, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. So... He was working night and day, he says there. He says the same thing in 2 Thessalonians 3, I think, that night and day they were working. Um, he had a job outside of preaching the gospel, outside of being a, a, a Pharisee, right? He didn't get paid for, for being a Pharisee beforehand. Pharisees were common men. Sadducees were like the high up, um, stick your nose up in the air kind of, people who didn't work with the commoners, but Pharisees had their own jobs, and Paul's was to be a tent maker. And he used that to to finance himself so that he could go and he could share the gospel with these other people. Um, that was First Thessalonians 2, 9. That he worked with them, or he worked night and day so that he wouldn't be a burden to them. And that's what we're going to see here in a moment. So Acts 18, 
before before we get there. So he was a tent maker by trade along with Aquila and Priscilla. And verse 4 says that he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade the Jews and the Greeks. Um, that was, again, his MO, right? To go to the synagogue. And how often does it say he was doing this in verse 4? It says every Sabbath, right? Not not every day at this point because he's he's got to work, right? He's got his tent-making gig. He's got his leather-working stuff. But on the Sabbath, he would go out and he would reason with the Jews and the Greeks in the synagogue. Now, we've been talking quite a bit through Acts and 1 Corinthians and um, several things, it seems like, about how God is sovereign in salvation, how God is the one who draws people to himself. If that's the case, why do you suppose that Paul is here reasoning with the Jews and the Greeks? If God's the one who does the work, and he's the one who draws people to himself. Yeah. Yeah, God uses means, right? They still need to hear it. Romans 10, how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they believe unless they they hear, right? Um, So Paul went out and he was the means that God used to draw men to himself. Yes, Joe? Why did they let him in the synagogue? Um, Why do you think they wouldn't let him in the synagogue? Well, if he's preaching Christ, um, rose from the dead, was crucified and rose from the dead, the Jews wouldn't have believed that. Yeah, you're right. So why would they let him in? the synagogue to preach it. Well, they make that mistake once, right? Every city he goes to, they don't know who he is, and they let him in, not knowing, oh, this is Paul who's going to teach so something we don't believe in. Thing. Pretty much, yeah, for Paul. He he took advantage of that opportunity, and then he wasn't invited back. Um, and he was trained. I mean, he was trained as a Pharisee. Yeah, he, so knew, he knew his Old Testament Old scripture. Testament. Yeah. Better than they did, I'm sure. But yeah, we'll see later on that they they don't agree, right? And they they ask him to leave, pretty much. But he he takes advantage of them not knowing who he is, and he goes in and he preaches. And shortly after, he's asked to leave. Um, but yeah, we'll see that. Yeah, yeah, he'll go and he'll upset one group, and then he'll go on to the next city. That's what we saw back in chapter 17. He went to Thessalonica, and he upset everybody there, and he thought, okay, well, I'm, I'm gone. I'm going to leave. I'm going to go to Berea. But he upset them so much that they followed him to Berea, and they ran him out of Berea, too. So he was upsetting people everywhere he went because he was preaching Christ crucified and resurrected without apology, and people didn't like that message. He probably started out talking about the Messiah. The Jews wanted to hear that. Yeah. Yeah, especially in heavily Jewish areas. They were looking forward to Messiah, and he'd start preaching that. And it's usually when he got to saying, and Jesus is the Messiah, that the problem started. Yeah. So I don't know how long it took him to get to that. Yep, people didn't like to hear that, and that's what caused division. All right. Um, yes. I think they use the word persuaded. To me, it has kind of a negative kind of tone to it. 
statement of facts and making a decision. Um, so it's just kind of awkward to make comment. And my uh, commentary is making comment about what it just thought. Um, it seems negative to you, you said? Yeah, I don't know. I don't read it that way. But I don't know. Maybe. You're just reasoning with them from the scriptures, trying to get them to come to a point where they they agree with him, I guess. No worries. I thought maybe you had an answer for us, but <laughs> all right. Yeah, I'm just trying to, to reason with them. Reason with them. Here's, here's what the scriptures say, you know. And of course, the Jews had a lot of ideals of their own. That they were, he was the Messiah, he was going to be a king, he was going to come forcefully with an army. And, you know, I'm sure there was some discussion about, <laughs> you know, how do you get there? You know, why do you think that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I'm just trying to get people to, to see things the way he does, I guess. And and how do you do that? How do you know anything? What is the first step to, to knowledge? What's the beginning of knowledge? Fear the fear of the Lord, right? So he had to introduce them to the Lord. Um, and yeah, that, that word and that idea of persuading somebody, um, that that kind of rubs up against our, our preconceived ideas sometimes of where we are in our, our soteriology, our understanding of salvation, because we understand that it is God who does the work in somebody, right? But yet, as Travis mentioned, God still uses us as the means. We are the ambassadors. We are the ones who have been given that message to, to take to the world and to proclaim it, to herald the fact that Jesus is the Lord. And we need to fear him before we can understand anything, before we can be, have our eyes opened or our ears opened. Well, I mean, convincing somebody by reasoning, I mean, that takes more work than saying persuade. Um, but just a to me, somebody or trip um, people into it seems a little odd, but persuade, that's what that means to me. Persuade them to the truth. And I think convince them by reasoning. I think like when we watch the, the presidential debates, that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to persuade somebody to, to one side or another. Just the truth. <laughs> 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 Yeah. <laughs> no well, truth. Maybe it would help to uh, remember the verse that was made to a hymn, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded. So it's a conviction that comes from confidence.
having having faith in something that's trustworthy. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's look at verse five. We see. So again, uh, Paul was all alone in Athens, right? He moved on from Athens, having been. Uh, what was that word that they used? Sneered at, right? And and mocked. And yes, I'm believed, but I imagine that he was not in the highest of spirits. He shows up to Corinth, and again, he's alone and, and ministering alone. But he finds uh, Aquila and Priscilla, and surely that boosts his spirits a little bit. But in verse 5, we see that Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia. So they're coming back, and they're joining his missionary group. He's not going to be alone anymore. And says, at this point, Paul began to devote himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. And if we look forward to, oh, let's see, I wrote this down somewhere. First, oh, second Corinthians, right? I can't follow my notes. I just wrote down some chicken scratch. Let's see. Yes, Second Corinthians 11. And verses 7 through 9 talk about um, Paul getting aid from Macedonia. So 2 Corinthians 11, 7 through 9, Paul says, Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted, because I preached the gospel of God to you without charge? I robbed other churches by taking wages from them to serve you. And when I was present with you and was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. For when the brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need. And in everything I kept myself from being a burden to you, and will continue to do so. So this is his letter to the Corinthians, again, saying, I wasn't a burden to you. I was there. I was working night and day, right, just like he was with the Thessalonians, um, so that he wouldn't be a burden to them. But he gets some some aid, some help from the brethren in Macedonia, which is where uh, Timothy and, and Silas came down from Macedonia in verse 5 of Acts 18 um, and surely brought some relief. And it's at this point, that we see that Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was a Christ. So rather than just going into the synagogue every Sabbath, now he's full-time pastor, missionary, ambassador Paul, right, who's out there um, proclaiming Christ on the daily. It, it was, uh, <coughs> looks like it was Philippi alone that supported him from Macedonia Philippians 4, he said, yeah. he tells them, after I left Macedonia, no church shares with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. Yeah, and I think that's why a lot of people think that Silas went off to Philippi. Um, so Timothy went to Thessalonica, and then Silas went to Philippi, and they came down and met up with Paul in, in Corinth and made it possible for him to minister on a, a full-time basis rather than just once a week. What about verse 8? I robbed other churches by taking wages from them to serve you. Um, saying that he he didn't give them 
the the same kind of service that he was able to give other people. Um, and he, well, he he took money from them so that he could serve other churches. So he didn't go in and put his hand in the money drawer, right? But they they gave up of their own money so they could support him so that he could be able to give them more than he was able to give the, the Thessalonian church or the, the, the Philippian church. So while he was there, he was likely doing the same thing, you know, making tents or other leather, leather products. And they saw the benefit in supporting him so that he could devote himself more fully to the ministry of the word and, and prayer like Acts 6, 4 says, I think. Any other questions on that? All right. Um, verse 6 says, But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean, for now I will go on to the Gentiles. So Timothy and Silas show up. Paul starts preaching full time, and they don't receive it, right? They just blaspheme and resist it. And he recognizes that they're blaspheming. They are resisting the Holy Spirit and Christ's work in, in their life. And his response is to shake off his clothes and to say, well, you know, I, I did my best. Your blood is on your own heads. Uh, reference back to Ezekiel, um, who was the the watch guard, right? In 33, I think, Ezekiel 33, talking about a, a watch guard who keeps watch over the city. And if he doesn't sound a, a signal to let the people in the city know that it's being invaded, then their blood is going to be on his head. But if he sounds a signal and he lets them know, hey, we're being invaded, and they don't do anything about it, then their blood is on their own head. Their guilt is on their own head. Um, and back in the, the Old Testament, the Jews, when they were leaving a Gentile city, they would shake the dust off their feet, right? And Jesus talked about doing that if the disciples weren't received into a city. He said, well, if somebody doesn't receive you into their house, just shake the dust off your feet and go on somewhere else. And sometimes if you guys have visitors at your doorstep and you don't embrace their message, you might see them shake the dust off their feet as they're leaving your house. It's just a way of saying, um, I'm not responsible, I'm not accountable. And that's what Paul was saying. He said, I came and I, I brought you the, the fullness of the gospel and you didn't embrace it. So I'm, I'm innocent of any guilt. You guys are responsible ultimately. So again, we see man's responsibility in the gospel. So Paul was trying to persuade them, right? And just like back in uh, verse 33, some people didn't listen, uh, 33 of 17, some people didn't listen, some people sneered and mocked, and, and they are responsible for rejecting the truth of the gospel. And these people, Paul says, the blood's on, on your own heads. I gave you the fullness of the gospel and you've rejected it. And you're going to be culpable for rejecting Christ. You're going to be accountable for rejecting the truth of the gospel. Verse 7, Then he left there and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justice, a worshiper of God whose house was next to the synagogue. So back in, in that verse, verse 6, Joe, we saw you know, they, they didn't receive him. So yeah, he... He went into the synagogue and he was able to preach Christ once, but they didn't listen. And so he said, okay, well, I'll, I'll leave, but just know that you're responsible. You're culpable. I did my job. And where did he go? He went 
all the way next door to Titius Justice's house, right? Um, who was a worshiper of God. And he stayed there next door to the synagogue. Verse 8, Crispus, who was the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all of his household, and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. So even though he was kicked out of the synagogue, he went all the way next door to the synagogue and obviously still had influence on the people in the synagogue. He no doubt ministered to the people walking by every day, going to and from the synagogue, and he had an impact on Crispus, who was the leader of the synagogue. And Crispus came to Christ with his whole household. And then it says, and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. And so despite being kicked out of the synagogue, he was having massive influence, um, even amongst the leadership of the synagogue, um, in preaching the gospel. I think that's pretty cool. I thought the rabbi was the leader of the synagogue. Well, that would be Crispus. He's the one who was leading, yeah. All right, verse 9. The Lord said to Paul in, a night, in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in the city. And he settled there for a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. What can we gather from this, this vision that Paul has? Verses 9 and 10. I think we're, we're talking about the fact that the Lord, who knows, you know, that his people are there. They haven't heard the word yet, so they're not converted, but they will be. And he, they need to have Paul there to give them the word. And they're, they're in place. They don't know it. God obviously knows it. And when he tells that to Paul, it's the same thing as saying, they are here. They just need to hear the word. Okay, so yeah, in verse 10, he says, I have many people in this city, right? Um, but these people don't know the Lord yet. And so we see that even before they knew the Lord, the Lord knew them. And so that's where we see God's sovereignty, right? That God is sovereign. He knows his sheep, and, and they are his. His sheep know his, his voice. He knows them. Um, he's the one who draws them to himself. But yet, um, so that was verse 10. He has many people in the city. And then verse 6 is where we see man's responsibility. That their blood is going to be on their own head. They're responsible for uh, rejecting the, the truth of the gospel. How do we harmonize those two? Man's <laughs> responsibility and God's sovereignty. Read a bunch of books and then conclude you know nothing. Okay. <laughs> That's our best answer? It's what, it's what scripture teaches. It is that, what scripture teaches. That God is sovereign and that man is responsible for himself. That we willingly turn our back on God. And we're not encouraged to be so we do it on our own merit. Uh, God saves those who he wants to save. He's sovereign. He saves his elect. And what is our part in that? Okay, God's word. Call others to repent. Call others. All right. Bring 
to, to be the means, like Travis mentioned, right? Yeah. To be the the ambassadors that he is called, that he is sent out to the lost. Remember, Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. He has a, a burden for the lost. He stood over Jerusalem and he wept over Jerusalem because he understood that they were they were lost, like sheep without a shepherd, like chicks without a mother, right? Mm-hmm. He had compassion on them and he sent out his church to go and minister to them. I want to suggest that maybe this link in between man's responsibility and, and God's sovereignty is is prayer. That that's where we need to that's where we need to land. We need to first of all pray for, for understanding and, and realize that we're never gonna fully reconcile those two things. Uh, we're just gonna like you said, Andy, trust God that it is biblical and that's what he has put forward. And then we're gonna stand in that gap and pray for unbelievers. I think it was J.I. Packer who said that um, everybody is Calvinistic when they're on their knees, that they understand God's sovereignty in their prayers. They will pray for their unsaved loved ones, realizing that God is the one who will draw them to himself. And they will pray God and they will thank him for their salvation, realizing that they had nothing to do with their salvation, but it's God who saved them, God who redeemed them and brought them to himself. I'd also note that when God is speaking to Paul, he's saying, do not be afraid any longer. It's kind of astounding because you think of Paul as being just this bold, bold kind of, the guy got stoned, okay? Bad, not... First century stoned. Yeah, first century stoned, yeah. right? My point is, as you think of it, he gets up, he goes the next down, it's like, that dude is brave. That's, you know, you just think about that. But God's like, looking right in his heart, he's like, don't be afraid of me. Yeah. Yeah, so we can see if he's got this vision where God tells him, don't be afraid, keep on preaching, that he was probably afraid, right? He was contemplating not preaching and not continuing on. Otherwise, why would God give him this vision? Hey, just just keep on doing what you're doing. You didn't have any thought of not doing to begin with. Like, no, God... Um, seems to be responding to doubts and um, some kind of trepidation in in Paul himself, right? Not too long ago, we just went over one of my favorite passages on on Sunday morning in 1 Corinthians 2, where Paul, right, the great apostle, the one who was untimely born, who was an ambassador to the world, the greatest evangelist to ever live, and he said, well, when I came to you, I came to you without superiority of speech and I came to you trembling and fearful um, there was nothing great about me he was trembling and fearful when he went to the the Corinthians and Paul gave him this vision hey dude don't don't give up right um, again he was alone when he was starting out people were kicking him out of synagogues sneering at him in the city that he had just left and yeah he found some friends in Priscilla and Aquila and Timothy and Silas showed up, but obviously he still had these doubts if God is coming to him in this vision saying, don't throw in the rag, don't give up. And go ahead. I was in, the, in my study of 1 Corinthians 2 where he said that it's a somewhat popular view among commentators. Uh, Ironside, I think, is probably the most notable one who believes this, that when Paul left Athens, 
he was discouraged because he tried an evangelistic method that he didn't try anywhere else where he was quoting poets and things like that and he had no success or little huh. success and that he was discouraged when he got to Corinth because of that and then he didn't seem to have much success in Corinth either um, but that he was particularly discouraged because of what happened at the area of Pegasus. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. yeah, it's always something we need to be on guard against is looking at our fruit and measuring our effectiveness or our ministry by our fruit. Um, we can for sure say that we will not be effective, we will not be fruitful without preaching the fullness of the gospel, that Christ died and he rose again. Um, not cutting off the, the bad parts or the parts that society wouldn't like, saying we're all sinful, right? That we are lost and that we are damned and we're going to hell if we don't have Jesus. And Jesus is the only way and nobody else can lead us to salvation other than Jesus. Those are things that our world doesn't like to hear, but that is vital to the gospel. And we will not be effective or fruitful without preaching the gospel. But just because we preach the gospel doesn't automatically guarantee that we're going to see fruit, that everybody's going to jump on board and repent and bow down and, and fall on their knees and worship Christ. Um, only those who are his, right? But in this verse, in verse 10, he comes and he encourages Paul and he says, you know what, don't give up because I have many people in this city. Even at this low point in his life when he is obviously considering throwing in a towel, God says, no, I, I have people here. Just go out there and, and be faithful and preach the gospel. And how does he respond in verse 11? No doubt he had lots of ups and downs, and even after he left, we're going to be going over for probably a year, looking at the struggles of the, the Corinthian church and everything that's going on there. But he he saw fruit, right? He was writing to them as brothers in the Lord, realizing that they had come to Christ. And so um, even though he was having a difficult time, he stuck it out, put in the, the hard work just like he was before, working with with leather um, setting an example for people he's putting in work for for gospel work for for kingdom work other thoughts or questions on those first 11 verses that's probably where we'll stop tonight all right well let's pray that we will be like Paul that we will be diligent and keep going Lord we thank you again for this book thank you for this man and the impact that he had not just on us but on the world he truly did turn it upside down um, and he was a man who was trembling a man who didn't come with persuasive speech or or worldly wisdom but you used him you worked through him and I pray that you would do the same through us that you would use our our influence in the lives of people that we know to to point to you that you would be high and lifted up in in our hearts and in our lives and that people would take note i pray this in your name amen, amen.